Hello and welcome to Canalcast, a podcast exploring how our charity, the Canal and River Trust, helps make life better by water. I'm Lewis Howell and in this series of Canalcast, I'm meeting people throughout the Canal and River Trust to open a window onto the work we do. Come with us as we discover how vital and vulnerable our canals are. In today's Canalcast, we're looking at the essential element of water. We'll discover how our team of experts manage water day in, day out. Why it's so important to look after every drop of water that runs through all 2,000 miles of our canals. Where it comes from, where it goes to and how we look after this precious resource as climate change brings us scorching summers and wetter winters. We look at the reservoirs our canals depend on and some of the innovative and smart ways we use water in our canals to make a more sustainable future for us all. So let's begin by welcoming Adam Comerford, National Hydrology Manager at the Canal and River Trust. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, man? I'm great. Thanks, Lewis. Good to talk to you. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad I was able to bring Canalcast down here. So, Adam, let's start with the basics. Where does our canal water come from and how much is there? Great, great questions to start with. So the water that we manage nowadays is, is, is part of the water cycle. It's been around since the time of the dinosaurs and we're looking after it now for the canal network. But that's just the same job as in a way as the canal companies did when the canals were first built 250 years ago. Water is the lifeblood of the canal system. We, we need it. Without that water, we can't do everything else. Of course. But it's a finite resource though, isn't it? Well, it, it is. I mean, it, it rains in the winter traditionally. It sometimes rains in the summer as well. And the difficulty is getting it to where we need it in the right place, the right quantities at exactly the right time to meet, meet the needs for the canal system. And I've heard like stats that revolve around the amount of water we're looking after. So yeah, you got you got to drop some of these on us, Adam. Seriously, yeah, happy to do so. So I think when when we measure how much water we we use, it's somewhere between one thousand four hundred and one thousand six hundred million liters of water per day. And okay, I'll, I'll put that in context for you. Um, if you live in London, your water probably comes from Thames Water. Thames Water, the water company, supply I think it's twelve million customers drinking water. They supply about 2,000 million litres. So we're not quite as big as Thames Water when it comes to supply. But another comparison is Welsh Water. Water companies supplying most of the population of Wales. And they only supply about 800 million litres. So we sit between pretty big water companies. We have to be pretty responsible in the way we manage that water resource. We're a guardian of that water and we've got to use it carefully. We've got to use it efficiently because of the, um, the potential impact. If we take too much from streams and rivers, it can damage those. But of course, the canal has ecology, it has biodiversity, as well as navigation that we need to maintain. Definitely, definitely. So I guess that begs the question of then, why is it so important to manage water on our canals in the way that we do? Without that water supply, we, we can't do boating. And boating is right at the heart of what we do as a navigation authority. But the Canal and River Trust is much more than that. As a charity, we want to encourage people to enjoy the waterways, whether it's just walking along the towpath, just seeing the boats, seeing the wildlife out there. A reliable water supply is critical for that. If we don't have that feed of water coming into the canal system, those canals will eventually, the levels will drop. They're man-made channels, but they, they leak. The water does leak out and they're 250 years old. They're not always lined perfectly. Uh, the water evaporates on a hot sunny day. And, and like I say, when, when boats go through the locks, the water goes downhill. And unless we can pump it back uphill, 
then that water will be lost out of the system. So it's, it's all got to come from somewhere and that's our job to manage that as effectively as we can. No, of course. And I know you mentioned the fact that, you know, the, the canals aren't necessarily lined as perfectly as we would like them to. Hence why, of course, you're going to get some leakage. But how do we ensure that we're not wasting water then? And where does that water go? The Trust spends millions of pounds a year on uh, improvement works, whether it's fixing lock gates, because lock gates deteriorate, they, they, they get worse over time, they start to leak water, so we replace lots of the lock gates. We, we fix up sections of canal which start to leak where little holes appear. We work hard to make sure that if we, if we notice these things happening, we, we listen to customers, we listen to feedback, and we, we get out there and try and resolve those issues wherever we can. The things that boaters can do as well, you know, those who enjoy the waterways for, for navigation, they can save water, they can share locks, they can do things to conserve water. I think all of us who go out and about on the canal system might see things. It's easy enough to report issues if you find a leakage. We've got volunteer lock keepers out and about on our network every summer, you know, talking to boaters, helping them to, to, to share, water, share the locks and make sure just the basic things are in place. Because not everyone's an expert at boating. Everybody starts somewhere and it could be somebody's first boating trip. So we need to make sure they're trying to learn good practice right from the start. Now, here's what I will not understand though, Adam. What do we do if we have too much water after let's say a flood or if we have too little water because of a drought? The canal sometimes is, is a victim of flooding. Canals often sit right next to rivers. So when the river bursts its banks and floods into the floodplain, the canal is sometimes uh, clobbered by that. And we get damage to our system. Just earlier this year, Storm Christoph caused lots of damage to our, our canals in the northwest of England. It's very difficult to, to make the canals absolutely resilient to every kind of flood event that can happen because we're seeing more extremes of these floods and they don't always happen in the same place. It's not the same bit of the canal that's always getting hit by a, a flood event. So we do try and make the canals resilient. They have lived for 250 years and, and have evolved and ad adapted. We've improved them. We've made them stronger. We've built them back better after events. We've increased the way we can manage the water levels. We use weather forecasting tools better so we know what's going to happen before a flood event. And there's lots of things we can do. And at the other end of the spectrum with the, with the droughts, droughts tend to creep up gradually. They, they evolve over many months and they build up. Prolonged dry weather starts to impact us typically in the summer months, but you can have winter droughts. People don't think about that. So in, in those summer periods when we do have summer droughts, sometimes we have to restrict the use of the canal. We have to say to boaters, we're really sorry, but using the water for locks uh, and going through the locks is something we can't sustain. So we, we restrict that, we reduce the amount of time that people can go boating, but it's not something we take lightly. We try and manage that and communicate as well, get the message across to people why we're doing it, what's happened. And, and usually when we're doing that, the water companies are putting out messages around saving water. The agricultural industry is struggling with crops and, and, and issues of drought. So we're often not the only ones who are feeling the heat. It's about working together and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of effort going in at the moment because of these climate change challenges and other pressures on our, on our supplies of water. So lots, lots going on in this area and lots of work for me and the team, definitely. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. But listen, Adam, I'm not going to lie, I'm in learning mode, so I want to get into some of these specifics. So you're saying that when there's a flood, we have to take some action, make certain precautions. Give me some of those specifics. Like what, what are we doing? Are we... Are we, where are we draining the water to? How are we doing that? What's happening with these reservoirs you spoke about earlier? 
Okay, so what we can do when, when the water levels rise uh, in a canal, quite often we've got ways of getting that water out of the system. So we can open a valve or what we call a sluice, and that allows the water level to drop in the canal, and it puts the water into a nearby stream or river. And that's always been the way that canal water levels have been managed. We might have what we call weirs, which are basically long stretches of concrete or brick that are set at a fixed level, a bit like the overflow on, on a bath or on a sink. When the water gets to that point, it spills over in a controlled way, and it will go to another stream or river. And sometimes that's a better, better thing to happen than the water pouring over the canal towpath and going into properties uh, or causing damage. The other thing we can do is obviously try and stop the water coming into the canal in the first place. So because we have feeders, what we call streams and rivers that we divert into the canal to keep them topped up in the summer months, we can also turn them away from the canal, close the valve or the sluice, stop the pumping into the canal, and that would reduce the water levels a little bit and stop those storm events bringing all that excess water into the system. And, and we're helped in doing that because we've got computer systems that, that control a lot of these things. We've got what we call telemetry. It's, it's little, little computer gizmos set out along the canal system. They measure the water levels. They're connected to your mobile phone. They're on 4G or 5G. They, uh, they bring back the data to me and the team. They automatically open and close these structures. They turn the pumps on and off. And, and so we've got that sort of eyes and ears 24-7, 365 days a year looking after the canal system in a lot of places. Not everywhere. It's very expensive to install and maintain this kit, but it certainly helps us in those critical places. Without a doubt. But, you know, weather is so hard to forecast right now. There's so much unpredictability. So what is the trust doing then to ensure that we have as much information as we possibly can in order to be able to have some level of understanding of what might be coming? We can project and predict with forecasts you know, about five days in advance with a reasonable degree of confidence what's going to happen. As we get closer and closer to a storm event, that accuracy improves. We know we're more likely to know what's going to happen in terms of the rainfall, where it might hit, how intense it will be and what impact it might have. And when we've got assets, you know, infrastructure, reservoirs, canal embankments that are critical, we, we can then look at what the impact might be on those. And we've got that lead in time from the weather forecast. But beyond that five days, it's really difficult. So it's something that always keeps us on our toes. We are effectively at the mercy of the weather, right? Now, we all know that climate change is causing so many changes with that. You know, people are not necessarily able to predict you know, and forecast weather in the way that we maybe used to be able to. So is there anything that we need to be doing in the next 20, 30, even 50 years, say, in order to keep water flowing in our canals? We can look to the past and we've got the data, we've got rainfall data for the last 100 years and we can see all the rainfall patterns. I can look at the droughts from the 1930s and the 1940s and none of us were, were around managing water levels on the canals then, but we, we know what would have happened if those kind of droughts had hit us. But what we don't know is what happens if those events are much more extreme, they last for longer, they're more intense, and, and they happen in a different part of the country to where they've not happened before. And that's the, that's the challenge with climate change. It's that sort of forecasting ability and you know, understanding where we might have problems. And then how do we invest to try and keep pace with that? Or is it, is it simply impossible to keep pace with that? And do we have to sort of come to that realisation, sadly, that we may not be able to have quite such a reliable canal network across the country in the face of climate change because, because of the pressures on, on the water. We'll continue to look at scenarios of climate change. We work with other government agencies and research bodies to look at where those problems might, might come back and identify, you know, do we adapt? Can we adapt our system to cope with that? Where can we invest? And how can we work with others as well? How can we do things more collaboratively? So the, the pressures on drinking water and what we call public water supply are sure to grow 
And the canals can be part of that solution. You know, our canal network does already transfer water around for drinking water, and we can do more of that. And our canal network is, is there. It's, it's, a, it's a ready route. It's already got a lot of the infrastructure to do that. It's not about new pipelines being built across farms and fields and, and under people's houses and towns. You know, our canal network is already a transfer route. It's just how we, how we work with those other water companies, those other agencies and partners to deliver those, those improvements. Because I think that, that will really help. And it can help us as well. It could help keep the canals more reliable as well as helping other users of water. Oh, 100%. 100%. So just to sort of somewhat wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about water quality, if that's okay with you, Adam. Like, How do we make sure that the water is clean, free from pollution, all of that? We've done so much as the Canal and River Trust and, and our predecessor body, British Waterways, to, to try and turn that around, to, to invest, whether it's dredging all those silts that have accumulated for 200 years that had pollutants and contaminants in that were really affecting the water quality, to try and encourage people to not throw litter and rubbish and shopping trolleys into the canals and, and get people to take a real ownership of their, their local canal on their doorstep. Don't, don't pollute your own back garden and don't, don't pollute the canal nearby. We've had to work with the regulators. The legislation's got better and better over the last 20 and 30 years to improve water quality, not just in streams and rivers, but in canals and lakes and, and reservoirs as well. It's made it much, much better in terms of quality of our water but there's still work to do. There's still lots of education. There's lots of awareness raising. Um, the plastics challenge, the plastics campaigns, encouraging farmers in terms of the use of their land and making sure that the water that runs off their land doesn't pollute our canals. Working with developers to make sure you know, when they develop a, a shopping centre or a car park or a housing estate near to our canal network, that they don't connect in and, and, and pollution and, and waste can come into our system. So it's a never-ending challenge. But I think if you ask people who used to experience the canals 20, 30, 40 years ago, they'd say they're, they're so much better now. There's more, more biodiversity, more wildlife. They're a place that people want to go and spend time, which I don't think they were a few decades ago. So I think that's a real testament to, to our work, but also the work of all these other different agencies and partners. Without a doubt. And I mean, just in this conversation, I've been able to appreciate first and foremost, the fact that water levels is critical. Before we even start to talk about quality, which of course is important, but water levels and being able to maintain those is critical to so many different users, to so many different people, to industry, to organizations, all of that is outstanding. And considering we're still using a system that was, you know, made 250 years ago, yet we're Yes, facing challenges, but still being able to maintain the requirements of all of those different people that need to have access to that water is, is outstanding, honestly. And I think, you know, massive, massive credit to you and the team for that. So thank you so much for joining us today, Adam. We appreciate it. That's OK. Good to talk. Thanks, Adam. Great to hear about how vital it is to manage the water in our canals and rivers. But what you might not realize is that the Canal and River Trust also manages 70 reservoirs that feed into our network and keep our water levels up. To tell us more about that, let's welcome Principal Reservoir Engineer, Natalie Bennett. Natalie, how are you? Hi, Lewis. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm amazing. I'm amazing. Honestly, I am learning so much from these conversations and I'm sure I'll learn even more of yourself as well. So Natalie, 
Tell us a little bit more about reservoirs feeding into our canals. Like, how did that come about in the first place? Okay, Lois, so as Adam's, I'm sure, already mentioned, uh, reservoirs play a key role in supplying the water that's used to feed our canals, and so they're very important to us. Um, in the late 18th and early 19th century, reservoirs were needed to supply the canals, which were being built rapidly across the country as part of the Industrial Revolution for the transport of materials such as coal, iron and cotton. The first canal builders tried to use runoff from groundwater and natural sources such as streams to feed the canals, um, but it was soon evident that reservoirs would be required to supplement these feeds. The Trent and Mersey Canal was initially felt by drainage of groundwater, and it was 13 years after the canal opened in 1777 that its first reservoir rod yard was completed. And then later canals included reservoirs in their design and construction from the start. The Grantham Canal is documented as being the first canal to depend entirely on reservoirs for its water supply. And the three Trans-Pennine Canals, the, the Leeds-Liverpool, the Huddersfield and the Rochdale Canal, are also heavily dependent on reservoirs for water feed. These canals were built to, to join the industrial areas of uh, Lancashire and Yorkshire. And now that means that our reservoirs are some of the oldest in the country, with the average age of a UK reservoir being 115 years old. And the average age of a trust reservoir is over 200 years old. So our canals predate the Victorians, who built most of the reservoirs that supply our drinking water. And their age increases the risk for us, as they were built before engineering was a developed science. You've spoken about the fact that these reservoirs predate the Victorians. So what type of work and maintenance then does the trust have to do in order to ensure that the reservoirs remain safe, you know, resilient, and can still actually feed into the canals? Yeah, well, good question. Well, um, as I've mentioned, our reservoirs are some of the oldest in the UK and they've only remained safe uh, through regular cyclic and repeated maintenance work. And we'll be going back to reservoirs again and again to do works. The type of work which we do on reservoirs varies greatly. There's maintenance type work to repair deterioration of things like uh, masonry pitching on the dam's upstream face or in spillway channels. There's work to replace elements of the reservoir's ancillary structures as they deteriorate, things like valves. Uh, there's work to bring reservoirs in line with new guidance for things like flood discharge capacity which often requires expensive works to construct large spillway channels and, and things like that. There are also investigation works to, to better understand any problems or changes associated with reservoirs. Uh, for example, we can use temperature monitoring to look for leakage paths within the dam, uh, and we can use technologies such as LIDAR to look at slow movement of structures over time, things like tunnels. In many cases, there's a lack of historic construction information for our reservoirs due to their age. So we're able to use ground investigation techniques to gain a better knowledge of the materials which the embankments are built of. Access can be a real challenge for undertaking work at some of our reservoirs, both in terms of getting to the dam itself, as some of our reservoirs on the Yorkshire Moors are only accessible by footpath, but also in terms of access to some of the underwater elements like valves. Um, and for these type of work, we often need to drop the level in the reservoir, which might disrupt supply of water to the canals and, and may affect fish stocks and require us to do things like fish rescues. Or we can sometimes use divers or, or cofferdams to help us gain access, which come with their own challenges and costs. And vegetation management is also critical and, and an ongoing activity for all of our reservoirs. Uh, things like roots of saplings and small trees can cause serious damage to, to spillway structures which play a crucial role in keeping the reservoir safe. And so we need to do constant maintenance and removal of that type of vegetation. So 
Natalie, as you know, I've already had a great conversation with Adam about the importance of being able to maintain water levels within the canal network in order to ensure that, you know, boaters can navigate and, you know, we've got enough water to supply wildlife and for all the other uses of water that we need. But of course, certain parts of the canal network are relying heavily on reservoirs, some may be less so. So how do we actually go about ensuring that that relationship is kept stable so that we have enough resource in both the reservoirs and the canal network itself. Absolutely, yeah. Some of our canals are far more dependent on feed from reservoirs than others. Um, in fact, some of our reservoirs don't any longer feed a canal at all and are, are more used for, for amenity value now, as, as we've sort of talked about. But many of them are still really important for feeding particular sections of canal. And it's very important that the reservoir team work very closely with Adam's team to understand the demand that the canal system has on the water supply from the reservoirs, particularly when we're having to lower the level in reservoirs, as, as I've already mentioned, for doing works. We work with Adam's team and make sure that we aren't taking too many of the reservoirs on one strip of canal down at the same time to make sure that we can continue to maintain that feed um, and we don't end up with, with challenges um, in terms of water resource for that particular section of canal. I never cease to be amazed every time I have conversations with people from the Trust. And I mean, even in this conversation with you, Natalie, do you know what I mean? Like in terms of being able to understand the role that reservoirs play, as well as, you know, the fact that we're having to overcome some serious challenges of not necessarily <laughs> always even having the information to do with how those reservoirs were built and developed in the first place to then go about being able to make repairs, do improvements, stuff like that. So eye-opening. Thank you so much for this, Natalie. I really appreciate it. No problem. You're very welcome. That's amazing, Natalie. Thanks for sharing such interesting stories on where the water in our canals comes from. But once we have that water, what do we do with it? How do we put it to good use to help communities, businesses and farmers who live alongside our waterways? Darren Lefley, Head of Water Development at the Canal and River Trust, is here to explain some of the innovative, unusual and sustainable ways we put our water to work. Darren, how you doing, man? I'm doing really well and uh, great to meet you, Lewis. I knew, I knew. I'm appreciative. I'm glad that we're here. I'm glad that we're here. So do you know what, Darren? Here's where we need to start. Tell us a little bit about what your job title actually means. What's water development all about? I think probably, and everybody says this, I bet they say this, that I have the best job. I definitely have the best job in the trust. It's, it is amazing. It is amazing because I get to interact with loads of different businesses alongside our waterways and it is really really exciting um, and some of these businesses like you said are very innovative cutting edge businesses blue chip companies um, and what we're really doing what my role is 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 actually to to sell them more water to work with them to find the solutions so that they can they can get access to to raw water everybody needs it and uh, and we can provide that I mean, the scale of, just to give you an idea, the scale of the businesses that we deal with are, on the one hand, a very small scale. So we're dealing with an individual farmer who may just want enough water to fill a cattle trough, all the way up to running the second largest water transfer in the country. I mean, that is amazing. You know, we're doing that day in, day out. And then there's everything in between. So it is really exciting because we just don't know who's going to pick up the phone and ask for water. That is phenomenal. I mean, I, I'm going to sound very remedial here, but what is water transfer? <laughs> so canals actually are 
That's what they do day in, day out anyway. At the smallest scale, you're transferring water. When you fill up a lock, you're actually moving water from upstream to downstream. And we're quite lucky that in this country that our waterways cross a lot of a lot of natural catchments, which mean that we can move water within our network into places and via routes which the natural catchments can't do. Undoubtedly. And, and I mean, today, you know, we've gotten to a point from what I understand where, you know, we're repurposing and recycling water in different ways. So this is just what I'm hearing. So maybe tell us a bit more about that as well, Darren. We know we're in a climate emergency. Globally, the planet's in crisis. We need to transition to this low carbon future as quickly as we can. And government have just issued the Green Revolution. And this is quite nice that the canals kickstarted the Industrial Revolution. And what we're really hoping for now is that we can be part, part of this Green Revolution. And one of the elements is that when we're heating our homes at the moment, we are all pretty much burning gas. And what the government's Green Revolution is doing is that we need to move away from that. And we need to move away from that very quickly. So they've committed that by, I think it's 2028, that, that we will be installing 600,000 heat pumps per year. One of the sources of low carbon sources for a heat pump is our canals. You could look at them as 2,000 miles of, of heating network. We're the biggest heating network in England. There is thermal energy in our canals, which can be transferred to buildings and to homes by a heat pump. So the water that's in our waterways absorbs the solar energy. And water is really good at storing solar energy. It's better than air, actually. Basically, all you do is you take the water out of the canal, you pass it through the heat exchanger within the heat pump, and then you put that, that water back into the canal. But because you've transferred energy from it, it's changed in its temperature. So if you're heating a building, then the temperature that goes back into the canal is slightly cooler than the temperature that you abstracted in the first place. And if you're using the energy for cooling, then it would be slightly warmer going back into the canal. It's the same water, so it's not consuming any water from, from our canal. It's just transferring some thermal energy from the water. It's a relatively simple process and it's quite analogous to a to a fridge so the back of your fridge is warm the inside is cool you're just transferring the the heat from the fridge to the outside air we're doing it the other way around we're just transferring the energy from, from the water into the building so it's a relatively simple heat pumps are complex and i'm probably doing them a complete disservice but it's a very relatively simple process Hepworth is um existing project um so it's a new building and it's a very iconic building on the banks of the River Corder, and it's abstracting water from the River Corder and then using that thermal energy to heat cool the building. So it's a really nice project. But the other thing that we are doing, which again is really important for meeting the, the government's climate change targets, is that you have to retrofit existing buildings as well. We've just um, just working on a project with um, supporting York Council. They have a 15th century building in York and they're just retrofitting that with a heat pump. Again, they're using a water source heat pump, taking the water out of the, the River Ouse and they're using that to retrofit um, low carbon solutions to that building. 
So you've got to do both. You've got to do new developments and you've also got to retrofit existing buildings as well. So it's all good. What about the water we drink though? Is that something that canals are supporting with as well in terms of actually supporting drinking water? Well, we've been doing it for a long time. So I want to take you back to the 1750s, London in the 1750s. Oh, wow. We're going back far here, Darren. I like this. This is a real history lesson. Let's go. So we're going back. So London in the 1750s, it wasn't a great place. There was disease. The water courses were polluted. There was the big stink. It was a horrible, horrible place to be pretty much. What the powers of B decided at that time that they needed to import into London clean water outside of the urban conurbation. So what did they do? They looked to the River Lee. So the Lee navigation is, is what the trust uh, manages and operates. And up in Hartford are these really clean springs. They were diverted and a new river was created called, funnily enough, the New River. <laughs> so imaginative. And that then transferred water into London, clean water into, into London. And about 25% of London's water comes from the River Lee system, which we operate. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough, on top of that, we are supplying 50% of Bristol's water. So this is the second largest water transfer in England that we are managing day in, day out for public water supply. The maximum is 245 million litres per day. So, you know, you have your one litre bottle of water. Imagine 245 million of those being transferred every day down one of our one of our canals it blows my mind as well absolutely blows my mind and we then transfer the water down the Gloucester and Sharpness canal that water is is supporting about half of Bristol's population Bristol's population I don't know five six hundred thousand people so at any one point in time we're supplying half of Bristol's water which is is amazing you know absolutely incredible that we can do that with one of our waterways it's great that is mad and 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 so because Correct me if I'm wrong, there's parts of the country where there's water scarcity problems. So we're doing something about that as well. Yeah, we're not sort of content with, you know, having the second largest transfer and supplying 25% land. We want to do more. We want to support the water sector even more. The All the projections are that with population growth, all the effects of climate change and needing to still do a lot environmentally, we're still damaging our water bodies. So all of those factors mean that in the south and the southeast, there is a forecast, you know, water scarcity problem going to happen over the next 25, 50 years. So the water companies are already, and government, already planning for this, transferring water. So using what we've got and moving it around is one of the best options. Our network is able to be upgraded to move more water and support that transfer. It's a win-win as well, because it means that our waterways get upgraded. They get upgraded for our customers as well. So from a social perspective, our waterways become more resilient for navigation as well. And the environment benefits, the, the supply of water, the flow of water will be more reliable than it is now. This is why this podcast is so important, you know, seriously. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, do you know how many people in London and the Southeast do not necessarily know about the fact that their access to water is being transformed by initiatives like this, work like this that's being done. And 
I'm going to go so far as to say that's saving the lives of the future. You know what I'm saying? This is, honestly, this is mad. But do you know what? I'm going to change direction ever so slightly because I keep hearing about farmers and, and, and carrot fields. I don't know if you can comment a bit on agriculture at all, Darren. So, yes, so we support farmers as well. And we're really proud to be doing that. So working with, um, you know, with our local farmers, because, you know, in terms of our waterways, a lot of them go through rural areas. You know, there's a there's a lot of our waterways that go through rural areas. And we're really pleased to be out supporting farmers. And farmers, again, have got exactly the same problems of climate change. You know that there's you know more significant droughts that are happening more frequently. So they need they need access to water. You can't grow carrots or you can't grow potatoes or you can't uh, grow horticultural plants without access to water. And yeah, and we we work really hard with that sector to allow them to access raw, you know the raw water from the canal and the carrot king. Well, you know, this guy, he's um, growing 50,000 tonnes of carrots per year. That is a lot, a lot of, I mean, I have, what, four carrots a week. He's growing 50,000 tonnes of carrots to support, you know, British supermarkets. And it's it's great. This is madness. Because when I buy a one kilogram bag of carrots, yeah, I'm thinking that's a lot of carrots that lasts a long time. So if he's, <laughs> listen, Carrot King, just say thank you to the Canal and River Charles. That's all we need to know. Just say thank you very much, my friend. That is far from a joke. Well, listen, Darren, I have been educated. I'm so grateful for this. The fact that we've been able to explore how the trust is not only supplying raw water to a range of different customers from individuals all the way through to multinational companies, but also talking about, you know, the production of renewable energy and especially the canal network being a source of thermal energy. Yeah, my head's gone. My head's gone. I'm not going to lie. This is madness in my head, but I love it. And then we're also tackling water scarcity problems due to our ability to transfer water, you know, upgrading the infrastructure, which fortunately is something that's in advanced planning, is actually going to support with, you know, different parts of our country being able to have access to water for all different uses. Darren, I'm so grateful that we took Canalcast down here today. Honestly, thank you so much. Really pleased to meet you, Lewis. And thank you so much for inviting me along. It's been great talking about it and you're absolutely right we need to get the message out there more than we do and this has been a great opportunity so thank you very much for that let's say a big thanks to darren natalie and adam for explaining the many ways the canal river trust manages water so life can be better for us all now and long into the future if you want to learn more search for managing our water on the canal river trust website tune into canalcast again next time But until then, why not spend a little more time by water?